Anyway, welcome here, and uh, hello to all of you joining us at all of our campuses. Before we jump in, you're going to need your Bibles to John chapter 8, uh, but before we get there, before we go to the message, I want to remind you of a really important meeting that we have coming up a month from now. Uh, so if you have been around and if you've been listening, you will know that we have been talking for several months, uh, coming back to our discussion around building a new worship center. And so this has been on the horizon for a number of years. Uh, we've been talking about our need for this. And uh, it is driven by our vision to want to make more and better disciples, uh, to raise up more leaders, and to plant more churches. And so that vision is driving uh, behind this idea that we would make space for more people. So we're really grateful uh, to God for what he is doing at all the various sites and uh, venues. I was able to be over at Central Abbey last weekend and to see that uh, church sanctuary literally filling up with people on a Saturday night. Uh, if you visit in Mission or at East Abbey, you will know that all of our sites uh, and in all of our services that more and more people are coming back and that is a great problem to have. Uh, but the bigger thing on our hearts and minds is that we know the vast majority of people who live in Chilliwack, Aldergrove, Abbotsford, and Mission have no connection to any local church. So there is a massive need in our community, and so the vision to reach more and more people with the gospel of Jesus is really what's driving this discussion. And so our council of elders and our senior leadership team think it's time for us to re-engage this conversation. Uh, we've been talking about it for a couple months, and I want to let you know about a few things coming up. Uh, three years ago, some of you will remember, we actually were ready to move forward on this. Uh, the plans were drawn. We had a congregational business meeting. We voted overwhelmingly, yes, let's build, and that very same week, this little thing called COVID-19 happened. And so it's been on pause for these last three years, and we really feel like, really feel like now is the time uh, to come back to this conversation. So uh, in a month from now, we're going to gather for a very important meeting. So on April 4th, if you can mark that date down, we're having a congregational meeting uh, to talk about whether or not uh, the decision whether or not to go forward with this build at this point in time. So we want to get as much information in your hands as possible. And I want to tell you about two or three things. So back in January, we held our first town hall, and we had about 300 people come to that to talk about this project. We are going to host another town hall next Tuesday, March 14th, and we're going to host it over at our Mission Campus. So uh, Mission Campus, particularly for you, but all of you at all of our campuses, particularly if you missed that January meeting and you would like to listen in on that conversation next Tuesday night. Also, the website, we've opened a whole new page just this week that has tons of information there. And then finally, and most importantly for this weekend, on the way into all of our services, I hope that each one of you were given one of these little prayer cards. If you didn't get one on the way in, would you please pick one up on the way out? Because over these next few weeks, we think the most important thing that we can be doing is praying together as a church family that God would give us wisdom that God would lead us in this. So uh, we're asking, would you take these cards? Would you stick them somewhere where you will bump into them? Maybe in your Bible or your journal, maybe on the mirror or on the fridge, because I know you go to the fridge every day or on the dashboard of your car, but somewhere where you're going to see it and be reminded uh, because we really want to bathe this whole process, not just this building, but the years to come and what the Lord is going to do with Northview. We want it to be really bathed in prayer. So that's the first weekend invite. Would you join us in praying. I'm really excited about where the Lord is taking us, uh, what the opportunities lie ahead for us in the future, and in particular, that dovetails really well into the theme that we're looking at this weekend in John chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to have John chapter 8 open. We're going to finish uh, out this chapter, the 27 verses that remain. It's a long chunk, and it's rich, and it's dense, but there's a lot here. Now, some of you uh, may remember years ago a television series called The X-Files. Anybody remember that? 
It ran for nine years, from 1993 to 2002. It was renewed again in 2016 and 2018, so even those of you under 20 might have seen it in that renewal time. It spawned two feature-length movies. It was an interesting series. It followed the life of two FBI agents, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully, who were assigned cold case files by the FBI, but files that all had some element of the paranormal or the supernatural or the unexplainable. And it was an interesting contrast between these two characters because Mulder was a PhD educated prof from Oxford University and yet he was open to the supernatural, to the paranormal, to everything controversial and conspiracy theories. That was his game. Dana Scully, on the other hand, was a medical doctor a rationalist, a naturalist, a realist, and she was always trying to pull him back from the edge and find a natural scientific explanation for whatever the unexplainable case that they were digging into. So whether you saw it or not, whether you liked it or not, it fits well with our message because the tagline for that series was, the truth is out there. The truth is out there. And that series in no way, shape, or form was a commentary on Christianity or even on faith in general. But its success illustrates something to us. That there is something in the human psyche that wonders. And that there is something specifically in the North American cultural appetite for asking the questions, I wonder, is there more? Is there more to life than what we can see and taste and touch in the physical realm? Is there something beyond the naturalist worldview that we are only just flesh and blood? Is there a supernatural world out there? So in John chapter 8, the next text that we get into, Jesus makes a provocative statement when he says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I don't know how that statement lands for you. What comes into your mind when you hear those words? But this text is foundational to the questions of life, to the deep questions of life. Upon what are you going to build your life? How are you going to make life's important decisions? What philosophy, what theory, what worldview, what ideology, what truth? What truth is going to guide you through the journey of your life? So when the storm waves crash up against your life and you have to ask questions, or when the fecal matter hits the rotating cooling device, as it surely will, where do you turn? And these critical questions are every generation's questions, but I think that they are incredibly important today because we're living in a world, we're living in a time, we're living in a generation that we're, where we're being told there is no universal truth. There is only personal autonomy and personal choice. There is no supernatural world. There is no God. There is no absolute moral authority. What is truth anyway? You can have your truth and I will have my truth. But in John 8, Jesus talks about truth and freedom. He talks about Satan's sin and bondage, and he talks about the key and the path to freedom. And the big idea, for sure, that winds these 27 verses together is this concept that the truth is out there, that the truth can be known, and that there is indeed a key to unpacking or unlocking the truth. 
And so we're gonna just plow our way through this text. And the first thing that we're gonna see is the connection between truth and freedom. So if you got your Bibles open, you read there in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now, I am not going to spend a lot of time here because the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of wisdom is a key theme all the way through the Bible. And if you have spent any time reading the scriptures, you will know that it asks the question that if you are going to flourish in this thing called human life, that you know you need some guidance. How am I going to flourish? You need wisdom, you need knowledge, you need information, you need someone pointing a a lamp on the road of life. So there's an entire genre of, of the Bible that is called wisdom literature to give us understanding and wisdom. The book of Proverbs opens with these words, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, sadly, that last line is probably indicative of our culture today that we have despised wisdom, that we have not feared the Lord. That we don't actually want to know the truth because we actually prefer to make up our own mind about things. We want to go our own way. And again, the scriptures are filled with warnings. Filled with warnings of what happens in an individual life and literally what can happen to a nation if God lifts his hand of blessing as we walk away from him, as we turn away from him, that he literally lifts his blessing off of us. Jeremiah 7 is one of those warnings. This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline, truth has perished. Look at that phrase, truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. But probably the most damning scripture of all in this subject is Romans chapter one, where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness, and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, and here's the key phrase, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You see, the naturalist worldview that tells us there is no supernatural, there is no God, there is no spiritual reality, and because there is no God, because we are simply here by accident as products of evolution, there can be no ultimate moral code or authority. We're simply left to ourselves to figure out our best way through life, and yet Jesus says the truth will set you free. The implication is right there in the verse. If truth will set you free, the implication is you're not free. And that is what triggers the rest of the conversation in this chapter. So his audience picks up on that thought. Verse 33, they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What are you talking about freedom, Jesus? We've never been anybody's slaves. We're Abraham's children. Now forget about Egypt, forget about Babylon, forget about Assyria, forget about Rome, forget about Greece. We've never been enslaved to anyone right? 
but we're Abraham's children. We're descendants of this man who walked with God. Don't you know who you're talking to? We're on good terms with God. We're God's children, if you will. And what we're seeing in that little pushback to Jesus is this age-old thought pattern that somehow my ethnic heritage, my religious heritage, somehow my relationship to others can put me in a better standing with God. And today we hear it all the time in North American culture. The thoughts that, well, I was born into a Christian home. My parents took me to church. My grandparents and great-grandparents, they, they were people of God. We're, for goodness sake, we live in a Christian nation. Canada or the U.S. In God we trust. God keep our land glorious and free. But what Jesus is talking about here is not physical slavery or political slavery. He's talking about spiritual bondage. And what we hear in his next section is the connection between Satan and lies and bondage. And it's pretty stark. So read on this next longer chunk with me. Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father And you do what you have heard from your father. Wow. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, he says. So Erwin McManus, years ago, he wrote these words. The things that we choose in our freedom soon hold us as their prisoners. So much so that we choose freely what we later find ourselves trapped within. Your passions can create the exhilaration of freedom while leading you straight into a dark, merciless dungeon. Not all free acts lead to freedom. In fact, if you're not careful, the choices you freely make may cost you a life of genuine freedom. One of the odd characteristics of sin is that it is a free act that enslaves you. Sin creates the illusion of freedom. In the end, it fools us into seeking freedom from God rather than finding that freedom in God. McManus was on to something incredibly significant. That sin creates the illusion of freedom. That that sin is attractive. That sin is pleasurable. Obviously, we wouldn't plunge into something that did not offer us something beneficial. So we look at it, Satan puts it in front of us, and there is pleasure. Whether it is pleasure, power, fame, fortune, all the things that drive our North American culture, there is something in it that is desirable to us, and so we plunge into it only to find ourselves enslaved by it. And what we think might be freedom is not freedom at all. It brings us some pleasure, but it also brings chains with it. So Romans 6 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Jesus goes on, and the next words are really stark. It's a long chunk. They answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the work Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. 
And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Wow. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Interesting conversation, right? Jesus says, in essence, to these people who are called believers, that your faith is not real. It is not a real faith at all, because if you were truly God's children, you would actually do what Abraham did. In other words, you would obey the voice of God. You would place your faith in your trust, and you would be declared righteousness. You would be declared righteous, but you don't. You're children of your father, the devil, and you're carrying out the family likeness. So let's be really clear. We, we understand this. Note well, he says in the text, that Satan is a liar. That Satan is a liar. Now, let's just take a sidebar here and remind ourselves of our theology. That we know, that we know, that we know that Satan has already been fully defeated in the victory of Jesus. Yes and amen? Amen. amen. We know this. He is a defeated foe. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ over sin and death in the grave, he has been put to shame. So Colossians 1, I'll just give you a couple of verses. For he, Jesus, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He goes on to describe how Jesus did this. He said he took all the things that were against you like they were written on a piece of paper and he nailed them to the cross. It literally says that. All the debt against you was nailed to the cross. And then he goes on to say this, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan has been defeated. Amen. But as a defeated foe, the only power he still has is the power of the lie. You see, he has no actual power to control our decisions or ultimately our destiny. And so if you find yourself saying, the devil made me do it, it's not actually true. Because the devil does not have the power to make you do anything. The only strategy, the only tool that he has in his disposal is the power of the lie, the power to deceive us. And so Jesus says very clearly, Satan is a liar. When he speaks a lie, it's his native language. He is speaking out of his character. There is no truth whatsoever in him. Every word he speaks is a lie. And the first time we hear words from Satan is way back in Genesis 3. The very first words he ever speaks are these words, did God really say? And from the beginning and right to the end, he is constantly calling into question God. And the implication in that conversation with Eve in the garden was you can't trust God. 
God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be free. God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. God doesn't want you to have pleasure. God doesn't want you to have any fun. Did God really say you will surely die? You shall not surely die. He contradicts God and he lies. But what is most shocking in this text is actually not the fact that Jesus describes Satan in this way. What's shocking is his accusation of these so-called believers. Because if you look there in verse 30, he was saying these things, many believed in him. And then verse 31, and he said to the Jews who had believed. And then he turns around and he says to them, to these so-called believers, you're not actually believers, you're children of the devil. Would that not shock you? Your father and my father are two different People, you are not true children of Abraham because Abraham trusted and obeyed. Abraham followed in faith and he was counted righteous. I am telling you the truth and yet you refuse to believe. And why won't you believe? Because you do not belong to God. It's a shocking text. And it raises a massive implication. You probably are feeling it already. That not everyone who claims to believe actually genuinely believes. Jesus is saying, either or. You either belong to me and to my father, or you belong to Satan. That's the only two choices. You are a child of God, or you are a child of the devil. There is no middle ground. Jesus will later go on to talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares. How he has sown the harvest field of the the children of heaven are called the field of wheat and how fruit grows on the wheat stalks and yet an enemy sows among the wheat tares. And we're we're told from agriculturists that tares is a, a, a plant that looks exactly like wheat in the early stages. In the early stages of growth, you cannot tell the difference between wheat and tares. You only know the difference when harvest time comes and when the wheat actually has a clump of grain at the end of the stalk and tares do not. And Jesus will go on to say, this has been in every generation, the tares are sown among the wheat. Now they were offended. I think a lot of church people today would be offended by Jesus' words. They were offended, and so they start to hurl insults back at Jesus. What are you talking about? And then they say this, we're not illegitimate children. We weren't born of sexual immorality. And you're like, where did that come from? Like Jesus hadn't said anything about where they came from or their parentage, but they are now on the attack mode. And they're saying, we are Abraham's true children. We know who our father is. We know who our parents is, but the implication is, but you, huh? We don't know about you, Jesus. Who's your father, Jesus? Uh, We know the story, that pregnant teenager, like who truly is your father? We were not born of sexual immorality, but we don't know so much about you. And in fact, they go on to say, maybe you are a Samaritan. Maybe it was a Samaritan man who fathered you in your mother's womb. And that, that of course, in that day was a a racial slur because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. In essence, what they're saying to him is, Jesus, you're crazy. You obviously have a demon. And Jesus goes on to calmly but firmly double down. So read on the rest of the passage. He answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Once again, what we're going to see is who Jesus claims to be. We've seen it all the way through the Gospel of John, but specifically here, two things, the life giver and the great I am, and that is critically important. I don't have a demon. I know who I am. I know who I come from. I know that anyone who keeps my word will live. They will never see death. They will never taste death. And it is the central theme of this gospel. Uh, John 20, the thesis statement for the book, says this book is written that you might believe and that you might have life in his name. It's the central theme of this gospel. John 3.16, the most famous text in this book. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 5, 24, it repeats it. Whoever hears my word and believes has passed from death to life. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're crazy. Everybody dies. Abraham died. The prophets died. We're all gonna die. But Jesus isn't talking about physical death. He is talking about spiritual life. That God has called us from death into life. And that eternal life begins in that moment that he calls us from death into life. Eternal life is not something after you die. A lot of Christians get this wrong. They think eternal life is something in the future. Someday pie in the sky, you know, when I die. No, eternal life begins the moment that God calls you out of death into life. It's a critical understanding. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are new in Christ. Jesus is speaking of life. John 10.10, he will go on to say this, the thief, the enemy, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And he is not talking about in the future. He's talking about full and free and abundant in the here and now. It's the power of the Christian life that is lived out in a world that is dying all around us, that our very lives declare the power of God to bring life and to bring freedom. The power of God to set captives free from whatever slavery and addiction has held us captive, he can set us free. And Jesus is saying, this is what your father Abraham looked forward to. He looked forward to the coming kingdom of heaven. He knew that one of his offspring would set up the kingdom of heaven, and they are like, oh, my doctor, you are crazy. You're not even 50 years old, and now you're talking as though you knew Abraham. And then Jesus makes this declaration. 
And it is a declaration that ultimately will lead to his arrest and to his trial and his crucifixion when he says, let me tell you who I am. I am that I am. Now, that little phrase might not mean a lot to a modern reader. So if you're picking up the Gospel of John for the very first time and you stumble onto a phrase like that, you might not think anything of it. Before Abraham was, I am. But it was a thunderclap in the Jewish mind. Because John's gospel uses this metaphor of I am. Uh, we've talked about the seven I am statements in, in connections to metaphors. That I am the bread of life. I am the gate or the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All of these metaphors. But there are two or three times in John's gospel where he takes that phrase I am and he uses it as a formal name. Not a metaphor, but as the formal name. I am he, and that phrase is loaded with prophetic power. Now, we talked about this back in John chapter 4. Do you all remember this? Uh, sure you don't, of course. In John chapter 4, Jesus first reveals himself by this name to the woman at the well. A private conversation with just this woman, the Samaritan woman, at a well, Jesus says, and by the way, I am he. And now publicly, for the very first time, he declares to religious leaders, I am he. And it goes back to Exodus 3, where God is sending Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt. And he says, well, who shall I say sent me? Well, tell them that I am. I am that I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. And at the end of his life, as Moses is describing the history of Israel to the people, he says this, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. And that particular construction of the phrase there, I am he, builds and builds and builds through the Old Testament until the name, the great I am, gets embedded in the spiritual psyche of God's people. And so when Isaiah starts prophesying about the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, Isaiah, who says more about Jesus than any other of the Old Testament prophets. When he begins to talk about the Messiah, he uses this phrase again and again and again. Now, we don't have time to look at them all. I'll put the references on the screen for you. But he asks this question, to whom will you liken or compare me? Who can stand up against me? Now, just listen. Here's the references, but let me read those verses to you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the Lord. That's my name. You're my witnesses that you may know and understand that I am he. I I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions and will not remember your sins. Isaiah is saying there is one day going to come a Messiah, an anointed one, a ruler, a king, who will blot out your sins, and His name is I, I am He. And when that Hebrew text is translated into Greek, they use this Greek phrase, ego, a me. And Jesus here in John chapter 8, verse 58 says, before Abraham was, ego, a me, I am he. He is saying, I am the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. Now, this is massive, rich and deep, these topics. The truth exists that Satan and slavery are very, very real. 
and that I am the giver of life. But there's one last thread that we've got to point to that ties this whole text together. From John 8, 31, right through to the end of it, there is a key to unlocking this truth. A key that is woven through this text, and it is the word of God. So let me just point out, if you've got your Bibles, you can see it there in verse 830, chapter 831. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Verse 37. You're not Abraham's kids because my word finds no place in you. Verse 43, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Why, don't you, why do you reject it? Because you cannot or you will not bear to hear my word. Verse 51 and 53, if you keep my word, you will never die. Verse 55, you don't know the Father, but I know him and I keep his word. Are you seeing the theme woven through these verses? The relationship to the word of God. So back in 1799, I was just in kindergarten then, <laughs> France had invaded Egypt under Napoleon Bonaparte. And French soldiers who were stationed at a little seaside town called Rosetta were building up their defenses, building a fort, and they were digging old stones out of the foundation of the city and piles of rubble that were around. And in that rubble, they came across a slab of stone about two foot by three foot. And it was clearly engraved with some ancient languages. They knew this stone was something special. It had three languages, including ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which was a lost language. No one knew how to interpret ancient hieroglyphics anymore. That language was extinct. But alongside those hieroglyphics was second century Greek, Greece. Greek, yes, that's it, Greek. This stone, the Rosetta Stone, proved to be the unlocking and the reviving of study of ancient Egyptian language and history. We now had a key, a lost language an extinct language, Egyptian hieroglyphics, could now be translated because we had a key in the Greek language. And Jesus tells us that the Rosetta Stone for understanding our lives is this book. This book is our Rosetta Stone. That if we will lay it over our lives and interpret the story of our lives, we will get the story of the universe and the meaning of our lives. If we will humble ourselves enough to say, I don't know everything. I need guidance. I need a higher power. I need a guide. I need a lamp. I need a plumb line. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what is the test of true Christianity then? What's the test of true Christianity? Well, let me tell you this, that it is not that you have made a profession of faith. And it is not that you were raised in a Christian home by Christian parents. And it is not that you had some emotional experience at a camp or missions trip some point along your journey. It's not even that you were baptized or maybe gone through confirmation classes. It is not that you pray or serve or give or attend, and all of those things are important and they are good in their right place, but none of them are foundational as a test of true Christianity. According to Jesus, the only one who can claim to be a child of the Father are those who are rightly related to the Word of God. 
And in a culture that tells us that there is no such thing as truth, this is a lightning bolt. Because in other words, if we can't bear to hear it, if we can't accept it and its exclusive claims, if we want to argue it away or dumb it down or dress it up, then we are not truly children of the Father. And I cannot think of any other issue that is more critical in the life of the church than the attack on the truth of God's word because it is Satan's only tool. Amen. If he can convince us to disregard or rewrite or reinterpret this book, then he wins. So March 3rd is a date that is embedded in my psyche because it is the day that my father died. So every year as we come up on the anniversary, on that calendar event, my mind inevitably begins to go back to memories of my dad. Fishing and camping trips and his insane love of NFL football, long road trips across the U.S. and black walnut ice cream. But embedded most clearly in my mind about my dad was the battle for orthodoxy that I watched him fight. As, as little as I understood as a teenager, my dad was a pastor and he somehow got into a theologically liberal church when I was in junior high. And it was a fight from day one. He was told by church leadership that the Old Testament was not inspired that the Bible was full of errors and that the miracles were all suspect. It was classic liberalism. And my dad was a conservative Bible man. He was pretty simple, meat and potatoes type of guy. He was an evangelist at heart. My memories as a kid were altar calls often in our Baptist churches and baptisms all the time and always a new believer's discipleship class. That's just how my dad was wired. And he was a man of one book, this book, the Bible. And even in that liberal church, the word of God was powerful and God blessed it. But behind the scenes at the leadership level, there was a fierce battle raging. And ultimately on a Monday, March 3rd, he had one final confrontation with a church leader arguing about Sunday's message. He wrote his letter of resignation, which we found later on his desk. He headed to the hospital to visit the husband of a wife who attended our church and was able to lead that man to faith in Jesus. And then he went home and he sat down with my little sister to watch Little House on the Prairie and he went to be with Jesus. Now, at that point in time in the state of Colorado, if you died at home, they required you have an autopsy. So they did an autopsy on my dad. And they told us that his heart attack was a stress-induced heart attack. And I can tell you that for a period of time, I was an angry young man because I believed the church had killed my dad. Most of you have heard me share that story before. And the reason I bring it up today is not just because we just passed March 3rd. And it's not that you would feel sorry that my dad died young, but it is for this reason. That the battle for the word of God has been the battle of human history. And it is the battle today. And with all the chaos that is happening in the world around us, if there was ever a day that we need an anchor, it is today. And if there was ever a day when the world needed the people of God to be a countercultural community to live out winsome, grace-filled, spirit-empowered, joyful, fruitful, abundant life in God, it is today. 
And many are saying, I'm sure you're hearing it, that the days are getting darker. Maybe that's true. But what I know, the good news is that the darker the days get, the brighter the light of Jesus shines. And so Northview, John 8, would tell us this, that the truth is out there. It has always been out there. It always will be out there. It can be known. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the only question then is, will we be men and women who seek for the truth and then surrender to it? So let me ask you, what say ye? Do you believe that truth actually exists, even though the culture says there is no such thing? Will you believe that truth exists? So three or four groups, let me just talk to you for a moment. I know every weekend when we gather that there are people who come in and you might call yourself, I don't know what you call yourself, maybe a doubter, a skeptic, a scoffer, but you're like, I don't get it. And I wanna just challenge you and encourage you, if you can so deconstruct the Christian faith that it makes no sense, then I have to ask you, what will you build your life upon? Because it is not enough to just deconstruct and to challenge this word, that's fine, throw it out if you want. But then upon what foundation are you gonna build your life? And will you be honest enough to ask that question, if this book is not it, then what source of truth will you live by? What philosophy of life? Others of you are here and you're, you're seeking, but you're still skeptical and you're like, I don't know yet, I'm open, but I don't think I get what seems like everybody in this room gets. Can I just ask you, would you pray a simple prayer, a skeptic's prayer to say, God, I don't even know if you exist. But if you exist, would you show yourself to me in such a way that you would make yourself real to me? And he will answer that prayer. And then saints of God, those of you, that's what scripture calls us, those of you who have walked with him, those of you who have surrendered him, the saints, would you commit yourself as men and women to get your roots down deep into this word? to be a people of prayer, that we would corporately, personally, and together cry out to the Spirit of God, oh, God, have mercy. God, have mercy on us individually. God, have mercy in our church. God, have mercy on our nation. And then will we walk out those doors and will we walk with humility, but also with conviction that we know we've been given the words of life. The truth is out there. We can know it. So let's pray together. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray and we'll celebrate communion together. So Father, these are crazy days that we're living in, it seems. And yet I wonder, your word says there's nothing new under the sun. So every generation before us for thousands of years must have wondered about what was going on in their time. But Lord, this is our time. These are our days. And as we look at some of the, what we consider craziness going on in the culture around us where it just seems everything is coming unhinged, We are wondering, Lord, what philosophy, what ideology, what theory, what belief is going to anchor our culture anymore if it is not the truth of your word? And so, Lord, we can't change our nation overnight. We can't do it single-handedly. We are asking, Spirit of God, would you have mercy on our nation? Would you have mercy on our community? Would you have mercy on our church? Would you have mercy on us? Lord, would you anchor us as men and women that we would get our roots down deep into your word, down deep into Christian fellowship and community, and the Holy Spirit, would you just impress upon us that this cannot be done in human strength alone. We so desperately need the outpouring of your spirit over our lives. We need you to fan into flame what only you, spirit, can fan into flame. And so we commit this to you for your glory 
and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.